hello again, my fellow flyers. Welcome once again to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. I hope you've all been having a lovely October. Personally, I'm thrilled that the hot weather has come to an end. Bring on the sweater weather, I say. Except to all our friends in the Southern Hemisphere, you're all getting pumped up for summertime, and that's cool too. I guess we're all embracing change, which is a very enlightened thing to do. This is episode 10 of the Plane Crash Podcast, and today we will be focusing in on Korean Airlines Flight 007, a scheduled flight from New York City to Seoul, South Korea, with a brief stopover in Anchorage, Alaska, on September 1st, 1983. Thanks to all of you out there that have been reviewing the show on iTunes and befriending us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is Plane Crash Pod. That's Plane Crash Pod. We read all our reviews on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, and they really make us feel good, make us feel like putting in that effort to pump out more episodes. So if you have a moment and you can leave us a review or a rating, it would be much appreciated and noticed. So thank you guys. Joining us again on the podcast today is everyone's favorite person and producer of the podcast, Tess Andrade. How are you doing, Tess? Hey, Michael. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for always coming on. Everybody loves you, and it's Aww. nice to have you here. Wow, thanks. Are you enjoying the autumn weather change? Are you pumped up for Halloween? Yeah, I love these cooler temps. I love that the leaves are changing. Fall is definitely my favorite season. Sweet. How do you feel about Halloween? Halloween is, you may or may not know this, but my favorite holiday. Oh. Yeah. So you're amped. Oh, very much so. Although I have to say I've really slacked off with pulling my Halloween costume together. I have to get on that. Yeah, me as well. I, I, I feel like I often just like pull a costume from the past and that's just boring. It is. You should be creative and original every year. Yeah, I'm always trying to look for it. I'm like, oh man, I got to come up with rent. Time to save money on my costume. And then if I just wear something from the past, people look at you and say, hey, you were that Three years ago. Yeah, one idea would be to use all that money you were going to use for rent on your Halloween costume and um, maybe find cheaper dwellings. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's a smart move. I feel like the goal is to show up to the Halloween party and no one can recognize you. It takes them a second to figure out who you are. Oh, so you want to do like a complete masquerading of your identity. I'm just saying if you show up in a a past costume, people are like, oh, it's you. Right, right, right. They're like, oh, it's it's the guy that dressed up as an astronaut last yeah. year. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he um, did. He did, in fact, dress up as an astronaut. Everyone, just so you all know. Yes, it's true. <laughs> um, this is a little bit off topic, but I thought it would be a good conversation piece in the beginning. Lately, there's been a lot of attention given to climate change and the effects that the recent tourism boom is having on the planet with many people flying all over the globe and more carbon emissions getting trapped in our atmosphere. Do you ever feel guilty about flying? And what do you think is a good balance to strike between wanting to explore the world, get out there and see its beauty, yet not be thoughtlessly contributing to global warming? Hmm, This is an interesting question, and I I would have to do a little more research on it. I don't really think I can speak with that much authority on the topic. But personally, I have never flown enough to really feel guilty about it. I take a few trips a year. um, But in general, I think, you know, as travelers, we should always strive to be conscientious and not wasteful. So yeah, if there's a way to limit your travel as best you can, that's probably a smart idea. Yeah, I think so. I think maybe you can even just balance things out. Go on one trip a year. That's a reasonable amount. Uh, maybe two or three. No, you got to be more conscientious. I think if uh, also, I think if people could keep up the clamor, the clamor surrounding climate change and, you know, get companies like Boeing and Airbus and airlines realizing that there's people that aren't flying because they are worried about climate change, maybe that will promote technological advances where suddenly, you know, airlines are going to go to airplane manufacturers and say, hey, we need some, you know, more eco-friendly way of flying. Can you work on research for electric engines that we can, you know, use in a more sustainable way to get this kind of market that isn't growing because of their worry towards climate change? Yeah, that's a good point. We should look into what kind of advancements have been made in, in that 
type of technology. Yeah, I should. Uh, another thing you could do is if you go on a long trip, maybe balance something out. I, don't, I know somebody out there is going to be like, this is a dumb idea because it's so much more wasteful to be in a plane. But maybe when you get wherever you're going, have some vegetarian meals. Mm, and right. maybe when you get home, plant some trees. Just do a couple things to balance things out. You're probably not going to completely wipe out your carbon footprint, but... Just, you know, be a little more conscientious. One thought I had is maybe there would be kind of a niche market. Like maybe there are people out there that are very conscientious about their impact on the planet. And what if you started like a vacation package company that had like eco-friendly tours? Like you could get on a cruise that's solar powered and we eat, you know, farm to table food. I feel like there would be a market for that. Yeah, totally. I would guess something like that already exists, but yeah, no, it's a great idea. I mean, if I could take a hot air balloon to uh, a vacation destination, I would. might take me a while, but I'd do it. Question is, is a hot air balloon eco-friendly? You're burning something, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, Um, that's a good point. One thought I had when I was pondering this question was, I remember you mentioning that you spent a lot of time sailing as a kid, and I thought that was cool where everybody else is, you know, using kerosene to blast themselves through the sky. You're just like in a boat using winds that are going to exist with or without you to get where you want to go. Yeah. Sailing was probably one of the coolest experiences of my life. I grew up sailing with my family. My dad was a sailor. He actually sailed around the world. I've told you that, right? Mm -hmm. And so for when I was in school for vacation, my mom and I would, would often join him wherever he was in the world. So we got to visit a lot of different places like Tahiti and Brazil and the Caribbean. And we would live in the boat and the wind was powering our, our travels. It was really, really special and um, something that I miss dearly. Yeah, that sounds cool. So maybe people can embrace sailing and it worked for you as a, a child, worked for your dad. Got to see the world, didn't have a massive carbon footprint. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the views that you get from the water are are unlike anything else. And I, I often, I think I would take sailing over, you know, the, the nicest hotel, the five-star hotel right on the water. There's mm-hmm. nothing like being on the ocean and yeah. hearing the wind and the, the water lapping against the boat. It's really really special yeah it sounds cool it sounds like you can go anywhere in the world you want not burn a ton of oil and you get a free hotel room wherever you're at because you can just sleep in your boat yeah all you got to do is pay for food basically exactly yeah and try and uh steer clear of perishables yeah canned foods are your friend if you're going to be at sea for a while sounds good one other thought i have is i feel like a lot of people are like oh you know what i'd travel for work i have to be on a plane for work all the time Mm -hmm. and it's like eh, maybe we should update their our jobs i don't think we should have jobs where people are traveling all the time flying all the time if that means that we're contributing to global warming it's the same argument you hear people say hey we need to keep fossil fuels around because we need to create jobs for the economy. It's like, who cares if you keep on pulling coal out of the ground, keep on pulling oil out of the ground, and that gives you jobs today so our grandkids are living on, you know, planet sauna 75 years from now. It just seems very short-sighted. And instead of saying, you know, got to do this for my job, it it should be an attitude of, well, I'm going to find a better job or we're going to update the way jobs are done so it doesn't require this or we're going to update our transportation modes so we have, you know, electric engines and planes or whatever um, is more sustainable for people to get around. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. I think traveling limits a lot of xenophobia and the ability to travel to other cultures and experience other cultures is kind of what makes the world go round, in my opinion. So mm-hmm. I don't know exactly. It's, I think that's, it's sort of ex- suggesting that we have jobs that are only in America. Is that what you're saying? Or outside no, of the that country? We, have, we travel, but maybe we amend. There's a lot of people that travel for their work. And that that's kind of an unsustainable practice, you know. If we said, hey, we're getting, you know, the cyanide business is booming right now and this is leading to jobs. Well, that's going to kill a bunch of people if we're selling people, you know, cyanide. We can't justify millions of jobs that cyanide will bring us because, you know, it's going to lead to people dying. Well, it's kind of indirectly in a slower version of it. 
is happening with our current economy where a lot of industries and a lot of businesses and a lot of jobs thrive off of shooting a bunch of carbon into the air and slowly mm -hmm. that's poisoning the planet it's killing off species it's going to make the world a unpleasant place to exist 100 years from now so we should, uh, you know, think about what we're doing and possibly uh, update our jobs, uh, figure out a way that we can, you know, teleconference people or, you know, the biggest thing that seems like the most easiest aspect is we can still travel. We just need to figure out how to make planes more eco-friendly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get on it. Yeah. Plane industry. Exactly. Um, we'll talk about more of this later. I feel like that you, when you start to touch upon xenophobia, I feel like that's going to be pretty good for this uh, podcast. Before we get started, I want to point out that I'm not a pilot and didn't go to aviation school. Through this podcast and subsequent research, I'm learning more and more about how planes work, but I am by no means an expert. I'm hoping people out there are learning a little something with me as we move along from episode to episode. We realize that each accident we discuss resulted in the death of many human beings out there, people with families and neighbors. We by no means want to be casual or insensitive with these tragedies. We just see plane accidents as historical events, and we want to learn why they happened and how they contributed to us learning lessons that make air travel as safe as it is today. Korean Airlines Flight 007 was a scheduled flight from New York City to Seoul, South Korea, with a brief stopover in Anchorage, Alaska. The flight departed New York's JFK airport at 12.25 a.m. on August 31, 1983. Flight 007 stopped in Anchorage, Alaska to refuel and switch flight crews for the next leg of the journey to Seoul. The captain of Flight 007 was named Chun Byung-in. He was 45 years old. He had worked for Korean Airlines for the previous 11 years, joining the company in 1972. At the time of the incident, he had 10,627 flying hours, 6,618 hours on Boeing 747 jets, so he's a very experienced pilot at flying 747s. The first officer was Sun Dong Hue. He was 47 years old, was a Korean Air Force Academy graduate. He joined Korean Airlines in 1979. He had 8,917 flying hours, 3,411 hours on 747s. The flight engineer for Flight 007 was Kim Yui Dong, a graduate of Korean Aviation College that was located in Seoul. He became an employee at Korean Airlines in 1977 and had 4,012 flying hours, 2,614 hours on 747s. The plane was a Boeing 747-230B built in 1971, first owned by the German airline Condor, which purchased the jet in 1972. Korean Airlines acquired the plane in 1979. There were 269 human beings on board Korean Airlines Flight 007, 240 passengers, three in the flight crew, 20 cabin attendants, and six crew members of Korean Airlines being reassigned to Seoul. On this flight was a member of the United States House of Representatives, Congressman Larry McDonald. McDonald was 48 years old. He was a conservative Democrat that represented the 7th District in Georgia. He was flying to South Korea to attend a 30-year celebration of the U.S.-South Korea Mutual Defense Treaty. He was seated in row 2, seat B. So Flight 007 takes off from Anchorage around 4 a.m. local time, and the cockpit is given instructions from air traffic control to maintain a heading of 220 degrees, and to fly towards the town of Bethel, Alaska, where there's a radio beacon that the plane can detect and fly towards. Once they get above the town of Bethel, Alaska, the crew can switch the autopilot over to another mode, and the autopilot will fly the plane along the R-20 air corridor, which is like a highway in the sky over the Pacific Ocean that goes from Alaska all the way down the East Asian coastline to South Korea. Flight 007 keeps a heading of 245 degrees, not the 220 degrees air traffic control told them to, but still in the general direction they were supposed to go. And about 10 minutes into the flight, the plane starts drifting north of its scheduled flight path. Flight 007 would fly consistently at a heading of 245 degrees over the next five hours. So this flight is happening in 1983. What's going on in 1983? Well, there's a Cold War going on between the Soviet Union 
and United States, and tensions are being ratcheted up all year long. There's a lot of paranoia and spy games going down on both sides. The U.S. and Soviets are fearful that the other one is about to nuke them at any given moment. So as its contribution for putting the world in this stressful place, the U.S. is putting ballistic missiles in Europe, talking about building a massive missile defense system with lasers, and they intentionally provoked the Soviet Union with a naval exercise in late March 1983. The U.S. takes three naval carriers, 40 total ships, 23,000 men, 300 aircraft, and they put them all in the North Pacific to do battle exercises pretend like they might be attacking someone and provoke a response out of the Soviet Union so they can study how the Soviets would respond to such an act. The U.S. wants to see the Soviets' you know, military capabilities, tactics, learn as much as they can about what their enemy might do in a potential war. Understandably, the Soviets are unnerved by this. I mean, how would you feel if your neighbor started looking at you in a menacing way? kicking over your trash cans and trying to taunt you into a fight would be probably kind of unsettling. In any event, the Soviets aren't thrilled with recent American actions. They think an attack might be imminent, and they have a secret surveillance program called Operation Ryan, where they gather intelligence on U.S. Uh, banking systems and hospitals looking for signs that the U.S. might be ready to go to war and they try and learn if a nuclear attack might be on the way. Due to recent American actions in 1983, they expand this program and start ratcheting up their military as well, engaging in new missile tests. On the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is located just to the northeast of Japan and the Soviet Union, the Soviets are about to conduct a missile test on this very day, September 1st, 1983. The Americans have caught wind of this, and they have a spy plane, a U.S. Air Force Boeing RC-135 in the area that's been flying loops in the sky, trying to pick up on radio communications or any visual information they can gather. Earlier in 1983, several Soviet military officials were fired for failing to shoot down American military planes that violated Soviet airspace. So current Soviet military officials have this in the back of their mind. They don't want to get fired or reprimanded if a similar situation were to present itself. So to recap, the Soviets and Americans are playing these Cold War games with one another. Tensions are high. The U.S. has been provoking the Soviets. The Americans have a spy plane up in the sky that's at times breaking into Soviet airspace. The Soviets are about to perform a missile test on this very day. And some Soviet military officials were recently fired for not shooting down American military planes that violated Soviet airspace. Enter Korean Airlines Flight 007. That's been flying at a consistent 245 degree heading for the last three hours from Anchorage, Alaska, off the course of its scheduled flight path. It's supposed to be flying down the R-20 air corridor alongside the Northeast Asia coastline, but it hasn't been. Shortly after takeoff, it was slightly north of its intended flight path, and after three hours of flying, that slight deviation has now become large. The plane has wandered into Soviet airspace above the Kamchatka Peninsula, that place where the Soviets are planning on having a missile test that day, and where a U.S. Boeing spy plane has been sneaking around in the skies. The Soviets' radar system on the Kamchatka Peninsula was under repair, it wasn't working properly at the time because winds had damaged the radar system 10 days earlier. So when Flight 007 shows up, only 80 miles from the coastline, headed straight in their direction, it's a shock to them. If their radar was working, they would have been able to see the planes, you know, two hours earlier and would have had more time to react and properly identify it as a non-threatening passenger plane. Instead, the plane shows up right on top of them, and the Soviets quickly scramble four MiG fighter jets to intercept the plane. Then the Soviets run into more issues. The radar isn't working, so it's difficult to relay the proper vectors to their fighter jets on where to go, and those jets were low on fuel. So before the Soviet jets could intercept Flight 007, the Korean Airlines 747 manages to fly over the Kamchatka Peninsula and crosses back into international waters. So the Soviet generals are pissed. They think this is yet again the Americans screwing with them and getting away with it. 
Earlier this year, some officials were sacked for not shooting down spy planes when Soviet airspace was violated, and they don't want to go down in flames the same way their buddies did earlier that year. So the commander of the Soviet Far East District Air Defense Forces, General Valery Kamensky, has a quick convo with the commander of Sokol Air Base General Anatoly Kornikov. Kamensky is Kornikov's boss, and Kamensky tells him to destroy the plane, even if it's over international waters, but to first identify the plane and make sure it's not a passenger plane before destroying it. Kornikov says, simply destroy it, even if it's over neutral waters. Are the orders to destroy it over neutral waters? Oh well. Kamensky says, we must find out. Maybe it's a civilian craft or God knows who. Kornikov replies, what civilian has flown over Kamchatka? It came from the ocean without identification. I'm giving the order to attack if it crosses the state border. So there you have a little insight into the mines controlling the situation early on the morning on September 1st, 1983. Both Soviet generals want to destroy the plane. The most senior, General Kamensky, wants to destroy it, but only after it's been properly identified to not be a passenger plane. His subordinate, Kornikov, scoffs at the idea that it could possibly be a passenger plane, and he says he's going to have it destroyed if it crosses into Soviet airspace again. Which seems likely because he's situated on Sakhalin Island, and the off-course Korean Airlines plane is headed straight at him. His response to his boss seems dismissive, like he's not going to identify the plane and is just going to shoot it down one way or another if the plane crosses into Soviet airspace again. So Flight 007 just keeps humming along on its 245-degree heading over the Sea of Okhotsk. All the passengers are probably sleeping since it's early in the morning. The cockpit doesn't realize where they are. They assume they've been hitting all their waypoints along the trip down the R-20 air corridor to South Korea. They're totally oblivious of the situation that they've wandered into. For the last 28 minutes, they were flying over the Kamchatka Peninsula, and four Soviet MiGs were trying to find them and possibly shoot them down out of the sky, and they had no idea. Five hours into the flight now, the Korean Airline 747 enters Soviet airspace for a second time, above Sakhalin Island, and three Su-15 fighter jets and one MiG are sent up into the sky to intercept the plane. In one of the fighter jets is Major Gennady Asipovich. He was in one of the Su-15s. On the ground and in the sky, the Soviets feel they're under a time crunch. If they're going to shoot down this plane, they want to do it when the plane is still in Soviet territory so they can say, hey, this plane didn't identify itself and was clearly violating our airspace. Asipovich is flying behind Flight 007, and he sees that the plane is a Boeing 747 with flashing lights on the wings and passenger windows, but he later claims that it could have been a cleverly disguised spy plane. Asipovich flashes his navigation lights to try and get the attention of the plane, and he even fires 200 warning shots in the front of Flight 007 to get its attention and possibly force it to land. Unfortunately, in a crazy coincidence, at the exact moment that Asipovich fires his warning shots, the cockpit of Flight 007 requests a Tokyo air traffic control to change its altitude from 33,000 feet to 35,000 feet. Tokyo Air Traffic Control grants the request, and Flight 007 ascends to 35,000 feet. What this does is push the nose of the plane into the sky so they can't see the warning shots, and it also makes Flight 007 lose speed. So the Soviet fighter jet speeds past Flight 007. This is perceived by Asipovich to be evasive action in response to his warning shots, and only further confirms these suspicions that he has that this is a military plane and not a passenger plane. Asipovich then does a loop to get behind the plane again and receives an order from the ground below. Flight 007 is now less than a minute from leaving the Soviet airspace and back into safely back into international waters. Kornikov, the commander of the air base on Sakhalin Island, orders, fire the missiles, fire on target 6065, destroy target 6065, take control of the MiG-23 from Smirnik, call sign 163. He's behind the target at the moment, destroy the target, carry out the task, destroy it. This order flows down the chain of command to Asipovich in the sky above. Asipovich fires two K-8 
air-to-air missiles at Korean Airlines Flight 007, five hours and 26 minutes into the flight. One of the missiles explodes near the tail of the plane, causing an explosive decompression, and heavily damaging the elevators near the tail of the plane. In addition, three of the four hydraulic systems for the plane were damaged. The second missile exploded close to the plane, but didn't have much effect. After the missile explodes, Flight 007 climbed upward due to the damage done to the elevator section. It ascended to 38,250 feet, where the autopilot was either switched off by the pilots or just automatically shut off on its own. The pilots of Flight 007 radio over to Tokyo Air Traffic Control and request to descend to 10,000 feet because of the explosive decompression. Oxygen mass had dropped and no one could breathe at that altitude. And over the course of the next four minutes, Flight 007 descends gradually to around 16,000 feet. For five minutes, the plane continues flying at around 16,000 feet before the pilots lose control of the plane and it spirals down towards the ocean before breaking apart 1,000 feet above the sea, close to the coast of Sakhalin Island. Osipovich, the Soviet fighter jet pilot, radios over to the control center. Target is destroyed. So from missile explosion to the plane breaking apart over the sea, about 12 minutes had elapsed. A Japanese fishing boat was below the 58th Chidori Maru. The chief fisherman of the boat stated in interviews that he heard a loud sound followed by a bright flash of light on the horizon, then another dull sound and a less intense flash of light. He also smelled fuel for a while shortly after the sound and the flash of light. All 269 human beings on board Korean Airlines Flight 007 were killed in the accident. In your research, did you find out what the pilots thought was happening? Did they? I looked at the uh, the communications in the cockpit, and it seemed like it happened so suddenly that they just um, tried managing the situation. That they were like radiated over, "Hey, we need to get clearance to go to this thing." There wasn't much conversation between the two of them. Got it. As you can imagine, the incident surrounding Korean Airlines Flight 007 was yet another event that increased tensions between the U.S. and Soviet Union in a year of escalating fears. There's a race to find out what happened to Flight 007, and the U.S. and Soviet Union are not sharing information with one another. The Soviets are also restricting access to the possible crash sites, not letting anyone come into their territorial waters. The Soviet Union denied internationally for five days that anything had even happened. But the Soviet news agency TASS announced domestically that the Soviet military had intercepted a plane that had violated Soviet airspace. On September 2nd, the U.S. announced that the Soviets had shot down the plane and released transcripts of intercepted communications proving that the Soviets were to blame. President Ronald Reagan addressed the nation from the Oval Office on September 5th, 1983, stating that there was no justification, either legal or moral, for what the Soviets did. And he goes on to talk about another incident in 1978, where the Soviets fired on and struck another passenger plane, which was also a Korean Airlines plane, uh, killing two people while the plane was forced to land due to damage. Reagan really paints the picture that the Soviets have no regard for human life and 100% intentionally and unjustifiably shot down a 747 full of civilians. At a U.N. Security Council meeting on September 6th, the Americans presented their case with intercepted communications between the fighter pilots and Soviet military. The Soviet news agency TASS finally admitted that a plane that had violated Soviet airspace had been shot down after repeated warnings, which was untrue. No warnings had been made. Air Corridor R-20 was shut down for one month from September 2nd, 1983 until October 2nd. On September 15, 1983, Soviet airline Aeroflot had its license to fly to the United States revoked by the FAA, and this was not reinstated until 1986. The Soviets found the black boxes for Flight 007 and never shared the information with anyone until 1993. As a gesture of ending the Cold War and trying to rejoin the international community, the Russians gave the black boxes to the International Civil Aviation Organization in 1993, and a comprehensive ICAO report was released with this new information, much of which was used for this episode. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, I think it was a pretty interesting story. So why was Korean Airlines Flight 007 
flying over the Soviet Union instead of sticking to its scheduled flight path on Airway R-20. Yeah, I was going to ask that question. That How did they fly off course? Well, I'm going to tell you right now. Okay. Well, at least the best idea. Okay. We don't know for certain, but the best guess is that the cockpit was confused by their autopilot system. This gets a bit complicated, and I'm going to try to do the best job I can to explain it. In the cockpit of a 747 at the time, there was an autopilot system with a display or control panel. And on this control panel is a mode selector switch. Now you can pick four different options from this mode selector switch. First, there's the heading option, where the autopilot follows a heading according to the magnetic compass. Second, there's ILS, which is the instrument landing system. We've talk, uh, talked about this on previous episodes, but as a recap, an instrument landing system is a runway approach aid that pilots use to land a plane when visibility is low and they need to rely on their instruments. ILS gives both horizontal and vertical guidance via two radio beams. A third choice on your little mode selector switch is VOR for very high frequency omnidirectional range which is a system for short-range radio navigation. It's been around since the late 1930s and has become antiquated due to GPS technology. Lastly, the fourth mode, the mode we will be most concerned with, is INS. INS stands for Inertial Navigation System. So INS is a navigation system that uses three computers for triple redundancy and increased accuracy to constantly determine the location of an aircraft and keep it along its scheduled flight path. Pilots input their flight path, a series of waypoints, into the inertial navigation computers and turn the autopilot switch to INS, and this precise navigation system flies the plane according to the flight path instructions that it's been given. So the plan for Flight 007 was to take off from Anchorage, climb an altitude, a couple minutes into the flight, enable the autopilot, use the heading mode to get in the direction they want to go, fly to Bethel, Alaska by following the Bethel VOR beacon, and then click over to INS, which will fly the plane all the way to South Korea on airway R-20. Along R-20, the plane will fly over a number of waypoints or checkpoints in the sky to make sure they're on the scheduled flight path. The problem is INS doesn't automatically engage unless two conditions are met. You can move your little mode selector switch on the autopilot panel to INS, but this doesn't mean that INS is immediately turned on. You have to meet two conditions first. INS only turns on first if the plane is going in the direction of its programmed flight path, and second, if the plane is within seven and a half miles of this flight path. So you can have the switch on INS, but if you're 12 miles to the side of your scheduled flight path, INS will not click on because at 12 miles, you're four and a half miles outside the seven and a half mile barrier. So instead, your plane will still be in heading mode even though the switch says the autopilot is on INS. If the mode selector switch is switched to INS and you're more than seven and a half miles off the flight path, the INS light will light up, but it will be orange, saying that it's armed, but it's not engaged. Once you get inside this seven and a half mile buffer zone, the INS light turns green and the system is activated. So one of two things had to have happened on Korean Airlines Flight 007. Either the pilots left the mode selector switch on the heading setting, and the plane flew at a 245 degree heading the entire five hour journey because of that mistake which is very, very unlikely in my opinion because these were experienced pilots that had always used INS and had never flown just using the heading setting in the past. Or the pilot switched over to INS, not realizing that their plane was outside the seven and a half mile buffer zone of their flight path and that the INS system wasn't going to automatically click on. Maybe they saw the INS orange light was on and they were tired and it just didn't really register that it hadn't turned green. The switch was set to INS and thus they assumed the INS was engaged when it wasn't. Because INS was never engaged, the plane stayed in heading mode and flew a 245 degree heading all the way off their scheduled flight path and into Soviet airspace. Does that make sense to us? Yeah, I think so. You sort of have to be on the right course for that INS to get 
engaged. So they must have flown off course at some point when they yeah, were th- on autopilot. Just slightly in the beginning. Just slightly. They were seven and a half miles outside that barrier. Right. So they used the heading. They set it to 245 degrees, even though the air traffic control said do 220. But they're still going in the same general direction, you know. And then they clicked over to INS. This is all theorizing. Right. Another option is they kept it in heading mode the entire time. But it sounds like they... Clicked it over to INS and didn't realize they were just outside that seven and a half mile buffer zone. And when it was clicked to INS, they'd look up and see that the switch was in INS and say, oh, we're good. INS is on when they were slightly outside that Hmm. seven and a half mile barrier. And when it's clicked to INS and you're outside the buffer, it stays clicked to INS, but it's actually in heading mode. It's like the default setting. Right. So do you think this is common knowledge among most pilots that... You have to do this to engage certain type of autopilot? I don't know at the time. I mean, they've obviously made changes to keep this from happening again. But mm. this is how it worked in 1983 and 747s. So, so did you uh, have any thoughts while I was reading the story? Um, who do you think bears the most responsibility for the downing of Korean Airlines Flight 007? I mean, I think the guys that shot it down bear the most responsibility but i guess given the tension between the u.s and the soviets um i'm surprised that you would you would think that the pilots would be extra careful not to meander into soviet airspace yeah i think they just had no clue where they were i think they probably saw like some flight display that was they were hitting all their checkpoints they assumed they were in the r20 corridor they didn't have GPS and didn't know where they were at. They were just kind of, you know, it was nighttime. I think that was a big part that um, I didn't really stress at all. It was, it was daytime. Right. They would oh, have clearly yeah. saw it. it was Korean Airlines. And they would have looked down and been like, mm. oh, we can see the land below us. I don't recognize this territory. Yeah. And they probably didn't see those fighter jets flying around them, sussing them out either. Yeah. Another thing I didn't point out is when this uh, uh, Soviet fighter jet shot off his warning shots they weren't mm-hmm. incendiary shells it wasn't like you know shells that were on fire that somebody could see they were mm-hmm. armor piercing bullets so you're just shooting off bullets in the night nobody's going to see that for the most part anyway oh, right right so were they could could those fighter jets have communicated with them via radio um, as far as the radio communications go, they didn't speak the same language. Um, there was no warnings, though. The uh, Soviets said at the UN, hey, we gave them several warnings. There were no warnings. And the Korean Airlines, it was up to somebody else to warn the Korean Airlines pilots because they had no clue where they were at. You know? Do you think they were trying to pass off? Do you think they were trying to pass off those warning shots as as warnings? Maybe that's what they meant. But I, I think they were insinuating that we tried to radio them and they mm-hmm. never made any mm. kind of call to them. I don't know that they spoke a common language and probably couldn't speak anyway. But I bet if you're a Korean Airlines pilot and you get a radio and it sounds like Russian, you're probably like, why were you getting that? You know, there would be some um, thing. I, I feel like to go on my little tangent, I feel like uh, I feel like there's three parties to blame. Three people you could possibly blame. The Soviets that shot the plane out of the sky. Right. I feel like the Americans have been antagonizing them. Had a spy plane up in the sky that looked very similar to the 747 earlier in the day. Did the spy plane look like a passenger plane? Did it have windows like passenger planes? No, it didn't. But they were both made by Boeing. They both had four engines. They were both swept wing design so they did have a lot of similarities i think osipovich the fighter jet pilot said he recognized that it was a 747 but he thought that it was a disguised 747 i think even to this day he doesn't believe that he killed anybody (gasps) wow that's interesting so it was a genuine mistake it wasn't any kind of political stunt or anything like that I do not think that the Soviets shot a plane out of the sky knowing it was a passenger plane. I think they thought it was a spy plane and they, you know, just had a a year where there were other Soviet generals that were fired for not shooting down American planes that invaded Soviet airspace. And they were like, hey, I don't want to be fired. Be better take care of this. And they definitely didn't, uh, you know, 
They weren't very thorough. They were also under this time crunch of, oh my God, this plane's about to leave again. Oh my God, if we don't take it down, we're going to get fired. Right. I think it's a little one-dimensional to say it's the Soviets' fault only, you know? I feel like the Americans contributed to this environment, this paranoid environment, and... They antagonized the Soviets throughout the year. They had spy planes coming in and out of uh, Soviet airspace. And I've, I also think, you know, the very end, it's the pilots. They made a mistake as well with the autopilot. They definitely did deserve to get blown out of the sky for it. Right. Yeah. No, I, I just mean the, the, the people most directly responsible for <laughs> that crash have to be undeniably the people that shot it down. But yeah, it definitely seems like it was a number of factors no, I agree. I think uh, another thing to think about is the design flaw in the autopilot. You know, if the pilots clicked it over to INS and the plane wasn't in INS, that's a little confusing. They were obviously, you know, probably confused by the uh, it being clicked in INS but still being in heading mode. I think yeah, that is confusing. Have they since changed that? Yeah, we'll get into that when uh, we get into the fl- how do how this flight made flying safer. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Another thing I thought that we could talk about is I feel like there's a misconception out there that there aren't real victims in a Cold War. You know, since there isn't a hot war, an active battlefield with, you know, soldiers shooting at one another and people dying on a battlefield, it seems like people perceive a Cold War to be kind of like safe. And it's just, you know, two nations pouting and not speaking with one another. And I feel like Flight 007 is evidence to the contrary. Having no communication with another country that you have these festering tensions with leads to events like this. Right, yeah. I mean, the lack of communication is what brought the plane down. Yeah, and and the paranoia on both sides. The mm-hmm. Americans have a plane up in the sky spying on the Soviets, and the Soviets like, oh, we better shoot down any Americans that are trying to steal our technology. That paranoia, that climate, led to an innocent passenger plane that's just trying to go to South Korea getting shot out of the sky. Yeah. I feel like these types of stories are particularly sad because the victims are casualties of something so much bigger than themselves that they couldn't control. Yeah. I think uh, another thing that I thought about while we were uh, researching this episode is that you can kind of see it in today's world with trade wars. Like there's a reason that world war hasn't occurred again since world war two. And, you know, um, I think the current American administration is engaging in trade wars and it's in everybody's best interest that worlds are as interconnected as possible if a war could disrupt uh, commerce you know if you have international companies and we're close with the chinese and it's in uh, our best interest to figure out whatever issues we have so we can keep on flourishing as societies and economies when you have trade wars, you're cutting down all those ties. You're saying, hey, you are your own country. We're our own country. That's the first step to putting ourselves on a footing where we could be at conflict, you know, a military conflict in the future. And I think that, you know, when we see things on TV like a trade war, we're like, oh, whatever. I don't own a, own a business. This isn't going to affect me. Well, it very well might affect you at some point if we keep on going down that path. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Another thing I found that was kind of uh, disappointing was that even after the accident, both countries approached the event just to score political points. You know, that didn't seem to be a lot of concern for the victims and how are we going to, you know, recover their bodies and how are we going to do an adequate investigation. Would have been nice if just for one moment they had come together, gotten over the tensions and made sure another accident like this would never happen again or, you know, pursue things in a more kind of a together way been like look our fracture caused this situation let's figure it out instead they were like let's make the soviets look as bad as possible and the soviets were like let's not share any information with anyone right it's not in anyone's best interest for things like this to happen doesn't look good for the u.s and it doesn't look good for the soviets yeah Gennady Osipovich, the Soviet pilot that shot down Flight 007, was later interviewed in the 90s several times about the incident. And he said he recognized that it was a Boeing 747 passenger plane, but he didn't see any passengers. He thought it was an undercover spy plane. He said the bullets that he shot were armor-piercing bullets, not tracers. So it was virtually impossible for anybody to see that in the dead of night. He also confessed his bosses made him record a message claiming the flashing lights of Flight 007 were not on. 
He said that, that in the recorded communications, there were flashing lights on, and they tried to alter the recording by recording him with an electric razor running right next to the mic to mimic the sound inside the fighter jet and had wow. him say the flash, flashing lights were not on. That is so conniving. Yeah, it was probably tough for him to live with the fact that he had killed 269 civilians. So you can understand why he's never wanted to accept that it was a passenger plane. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like he has a real conscience. Yeah, it sounds like he, you know, just said the best way for me to address this is to never address it. Say I shot a spy plane down. So how this accident, how did the uh, Korean Airlines Flight 007 make flying safer? Well, in two ways. Due to the downing of Flight 007, President Reagan decided to make GPS technology available for civilian use so planes could know exactly where they are in the sky at all times. I guess they were considering keeping it as a secret military technology, but in light of the accident, they thought it would be useful in planes to prevent another Flight 007 from happening again. Secondly, the autopilot control panel was updated to make it abundantly clear when a plane is in heading or in INS mode. So they fixed that design wow. flaw. Sounds like there were a lot of positive consequences that came out of this. Yeah, at least two updates to air safety to prevent something like this from happening again. Yeah, sounds like there were a lot of positive um, updates that came out of this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a few updates in the world of commercial aviation. Would you like to hear them, Tess? Yes, please. In regards to Boeing MAX 8 planes, it was recently announced that no American airline with MAX 8 planes will be flying them until at least January 2020. Southwest, American, and United all announced that they were pushing back reintegrating the planes into their fleet until early next year. Oh, God. A text message exchange between two upper-level technical pilots for Boeing was uncovered this past week. Chief Technical Pilot Mark Forkner and Patrick Gustafson, another technical pilot for Boeing, sent texts back and forth to each other in 2016 discussing how MCAS was engaging itself like crazy in the flight simulator, and they referred to the issue as egregious. Fortner goes on to say, so I basically lied to the regulators in reference to, F to the FAA. At the time, Boeing was seeking certification for the new MAX 8 plane with the FAA. So Boeing's MAX 8 headache doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. What do you think about that, Tess? Well, I really don't want these planes reintroduced to the market, I'll tell you that much. I think uh, at this point, they need to call it something else. I don't yeah, want to get definitely. on a Maxi plane. Rebrand yourself. Yeah, I'll update the software, call it the Boeing... Maximus. The know, Boeing Maximus. Futuro, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> like, call it something that we aren't going to associate with no nosediving into the That seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, they can't come back and be like, oh, Max 8 planes are here We're again. back, yeah, and so. we're better than ever before. But what this text exchange says, all along Boeing's been saying, we had no idea. We had no idea what was going on. Well, their chief technical pilot and another technical pilot are texting each other in 2016 saying MCAS is out of whack and it's oh, egregious. They and they apparently lied to the FAA to get it certified. So they have quite the headache coming for them if they don't even have a large enough one right now. Yep. They're going to have some splaining to do. American Airlines, United, and Alaska have recently announced that they're removing seatback screens from their planes because of the rise of smart devices. I can already tell how you feel about this one. Tess. I don't like that idea. Uh, Delta says they will be providing free Wi-Fi and charging outlets between seats to compensate. Well, that's nice, but... Did you have to download some kind of app to watch movies? Because that's I what imagine. I've been encountering. I mean, when lately. I read this, I was like, this sucks. Every time I get on a plane and there's like t screens with TV, I immediately feel a little blast of serotonin. Me too. I'm me like, too. oh, this is going to be a good it flight. makes me so happy. And it makes me happy to look around and see. The, the other thing is if the screen is in the back of the person's headset seat in front of you, you can just look straight ahead. I feel like when people have computers or phones, they just look down. Right, it hurts have, your neck. You're going to get more neck pain, mm -hmm. and you're just going to be looking down. And I like seeing, you know, we're all choosing from the same library of stuff. It's kind of cool to like right. go to the bathroom and be like, oh, that guy's watching Indiana Jones. I was yeah. going to watch that. Yeah, it's also kind of making the assumption that everyone has smartphones, yeah. which... You know, we don't. I Some like, people aren't able to download an app on the fly when they're at an airport right yeah. before they're about to board their plane. Because now they have actually started making announcements about that. Mm -hmm. um, they, they'll say, you know, you need to download an app if you want to watch movies, etc. Yeah. Well, that information bummed me out. So I hope 
Delta and all you airlines are listening to this podcast and realizing that people are upset. Delta, Alaska, if you're listening, we want our screens. Don't do it, man. All right. uh, Delta Airlines announced that they're hiring 12,000 new employees over the next year. Okay. Pilots, flight attendants, grounds crew. Here's the travel biz isn't going away anytime soon. Kind of a recession-proof, technology-proof industry, huh? Absolutely. A fun fact for you, Michael. You ready for this one? Yes. The Bachelor, who was announced recently, is a Delta pilot. Yeah. You know how I feel about that franchise. You must like Delta pilots then, too. Lastly, Singapore Airlines announced that on the world's longest flight from Newark to Singapore... They will now have farm-to-plane meals, meaning veggies and the fruit that they serve on the flight are going to be grown in an indoor vertical garden less than a mile from Newark Airport. Yeah. Are you into that? More eco-friendly, just like you wanted. Yeah. You get some, like, eco-friendly food. I want to get on a plane with electric engines that are, you know, just as good as the engines we have now. Yeah. I want a plane that just flaps its wings and doesn't even... Run on fuel. Sounds like you just want a big bird. (laughs) Been watching too much Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah, clearly. My imagination is a little too active. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm very happy about that. Hopefully, airplane food just continues to get better and better. I have to say it's gotten way better since my days as a kid. I remember it was pretty horrible, and now I'm always pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Well, we ended on a good note, so... Michael, one question. One of our listeners had asked what the song was that we open with. Would you mind telling us? It's a song called First World Cares that I recorded in a band called The Dark Matters. Oh, so this is you. Yes, it's a band that I was in, and it was a song we recorded with Steve Albini in Chicago, Illinois in 2014, and... We never released the record, but I'm going to figure out a way to put it up online so people can check it out. Maybe just give it away for free. So yeah, just uh, stay tuned for that, guys. I want to thank everybody out there that's been listening to our podcast and giving us kind reviews and emailing us and befriending us on Twitter. Every time we get a message, it just makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're spending our time wisely. It makes us want to research and put in the effort for another episode. I also hope that you all are working hard at whatever you've chosen to do with your lives. Um, if you have decided to be a teacher, I hope you're bringing your A game to those kids. If you're a police officer, I hope you're making your community stronger. If you're a writer, I hope you're working to the best of your abilities. I believe in you all, and I'm going to try and work hard this next couple of weeks as well. We Hopefully, we'll have another episode coming up in the next 10-ish days. We're hoping to do a Halloween episode, yeah. so sit tight for that. That'll be fun. But I love you all. Thanks for hanging out with us. It was a pleasure, and I hope you have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.